Today, uh, I am here with Dr. James Hudson, excuse me, guys, uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. Uh, one of my historical mentors. Assistant, assistant professor. Assistant professor. Okay. Sorry. Assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. I probably should have clarified that earlier. <laughs> um, but uh, Dr. Hudson, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thanks, Mike. It's great to be with you. Um, I've been teaching at UNC Pembroke for, uh, uh, geez, two and a half, three years now. I can't keep track. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm, uh, I finished my PhD uh, from the University of Texas uh, in 2015. Um, my area, my primary area of, uh, of interest is uh, urban history in China and Asia. Um, before teaching at Pembroke, I've taught, I taught at a small liberal arts college in the Midwest. I taught at the main campus of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville for two years. Um, and then I landed here in, uh, in the summer of 2018 and I teach courses on, uh, early and contemporary world history. It's our general education world history survey, um, that all students are required to take. Um, and many hate, <laughs> um, uh, it's a challenge, you know, you have to be a little bit of a salesman, um, when you're, you're a teacher because you have to sell the relevance of, uh, of your discipline. But I also teach courses in, in my area that is East Asia, um, mainly focusing on China. Yes. Uh, and that leads us into our topic for today, which is the oft misunderstood, Cultural Revolution, uh, lasting around 10 years in China. It's widely debated uh, through, you know, your social media pundits and actual uh, academics that study the area. So let's let's lay a little bit of groundwork here. All right. Um, really debated. I, I just find that I'm, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. I, I just... Uh, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, in the, the area in which you said it's being it's being debated on social media, I am not on social media, and I think you're brave <laughs> for, for doing so. Oh, trust me, I I'm, I the great thing about Twitter is I met a lot of lefty veterans that feel the you know that I, I had some some peers that felt the same way I did politically mm -hmm. and not through other things, right? But then you also get the other side. Uh, where you have, uh, you know, tankies who were just so pro-Stalin, it's not even funny. You know, people who claim like the Ukrainian um, uh, Hodolomor was wasn't, or, or I probably said that wrong, uh, but the Ukrainian famine in the twenties, you know, wasn't state engineered. Uh, they, you know, discount the death count. They they don't think that the Cultural Revolution was actually that bad. Um, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of wackos out there, trust me. But uh, I also get to meet people that help me, you know, set up a, you know, doing a podcast. They planted that little seed. So um, before we really jump into the cultural revolution, though, let's let's give everybody some context. Um, 
So the end of World War II comes and we have a, a split China. We have a nationalist uh, a block led by Chiang uh, uh, Kai-shek, and then we have the communist block led by Comrade Mao. Um, so how, how exactly did the Civil War kind of unfold? Well, the, uh, the Civil War between the nationalists and communists had been uh, fuming um, in, during the war. Uh, and before, um, and uh, a telltale moment. I think the real rift occurred um, when we go back to April of 1927, when Chiang Kai-shek made the decision to purge the communists from the Nationalist Party. Um, and uh, this is known as the April coup. Um, and communists were arrested, rounded up, executed. And driven underground, and really, that was the, the opening salvo in, the, okay. in the, the rift between the two. Because the Communist Party was founded in 1921, uh, and it was initially the the, the party was, um, for more intent, for all intents and purposes, just sort of still part of the of the nationalist uh, polity. Um, so it was essentially it was just a block and a larger like coalition. Yeah. Everybody was in the Nationalist Party, okay. even if they were communists. Um, but the Nationalist Party leadership, Chiang Kai-shek obviously among them, just began to recognize that the, the, what the communists represented in terms of organized labor um, and uh, you know, identification with the, with the peasantry and, and things like that were contrary to the interests of, 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 of his vision uh for for china what 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 he wanted china to be and so then in um you know in the late 1930s uh in 1937 is when the when japan invaded china and so <clears throat> there existed a there was a precarious alliance between the nationalists and the communists uh throughout the war um yeah kind of like an enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing yeah um but I mean, Chiang Kai-shek believed all along that, uh, you know, the famously said that, the, you know, the communists are a disease of the heart and the Japanese are a disease of the skin. And so you, the, he felt that the internal threat of the communists was greater. Um, and he, I think, was still actively trying to persecute the communists. And this is what led them to flee to the, the base area of Yan'an. Uh, during the famous Long March, um, and they were able to re rebuild their numbers there. Yeah, and the Long March, if it, you know, just to add a little bit more, the Long March is where Mao essentially earned his communist bona fides. Um, you know, he at that point, correct me if I'm wrong. That's that's kind of where he uh, really stuck out, kind of became the guiding hand uh, for the communist forces, and he wrote like the guerrilla warfare 101 handbook yeah and it, it wasn't just him it was all these uh um all the people in the party at that time that survived the long march it forged a real bond you know uh among all of them um that they were able to survive that and, and endure that together um and uh I mean, it was it was a formidable event. Yeah, uh, 
in the, in the history of the party. Uh, yeah, like the, the cadre that would go on to fight the Civil War, that, that's where it was built, was on the, like that's essentially where those guys kind of came to the forefront was during the Long March. Right, and then, but by the time of the end of the war, uh, I mean, a lot of nationalists died fighting the Japanese. Yeah. Um, and so the nationalists had, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's government had to move from fighting uh, a war uh, from an, you know, invading uh, invading country to a, a civil war, and it was. I mean, you know, the fact that the, the nationalists, I think, exhausted all the resources fighting the Japanese, it, 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 you know, it, it favored the communists in the end. Yeah. Um, there was an attempt to broker a, a truce, a treaty between the two parties. Um, uh, George Marshall um, became involved, became Secretary of the State at that time. Uh but ultimately, obviously, the communists were victorious, and Chiang Kai-shek's government fled to Taiwan. Okay. So, um, and, and and I'll just before we can move on, um, okay. I, I think the 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 militarization of Chinese society uh, during the during the war it carries over into, uh, you know, after the establishment of the Pe People's Republic. Um, that sort of the 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 urgency uh, yeah. to eliminate you know uh, to to create this new utopia to to create an ideal society to eliminate any kind of enemies class enemies especially we can talk more about that as we move on yeah but yeah I mean you gotta you gotta look at it too like you just spent you know it's a war wrapped up in in forty nine but you spent what twelve thirteen years in a constant state of warfare. Um, you know, you, you could see not just, uh, you know, militarily, uh, you know, like you were saying, the nationalists, you know, they, they expended everything they had fighting the Japanese. They had nothing left, uh, when it, when, you know, to kind of fend off for lack of a better term, uh, you know, Mao and, in in that, in the Chinese communists. But, you know, this is a, a populace of people that were pretty much just, I imagine like, you know, the hell with this man, we're, we're tired of it. We, we have to kind of reboot so like you said we don't have to do this again uh, we want you know we want better uh you know especially considering how the japanese went rampaging through you know uh eastern china um you know with, with what happened in Nanking and, and just the the complete uh you know essentially you know stripping china for parts you know in the places where the japanese were um but 49, we have 1949, the Chinese communists are, are in charge, right? Um, so what happens, you know, in a nutshell between, we'll say, 1950 and 1966 when the Cultural Revolution kicks off? Like, what, what, what was the onus? Like, what, what was Mao trying to uh, essentially, how, how did he go from being kind of the hero of the moment into to pushing you know, for, for this big cultural change to the cultural revolution? Oh, there's several things. Um, the first big one, obviously, is uh, or was the uh, the Korean War. Yeah. Um, in the summer of 1950, uh, when it broke out. Um, and 
because I mean, during during the war, you know, the the United States and China had been allies, um, but then that quickly shifted once the United States uh, uh, entered the war, um, and then uh, you know, MacArthur moved his troops into into north into the northern part, uh, part of Korea and. Uh, <laughs> said we should nuke China. <laughs> border of China and China obviously viewed this as a threat. They entered the war. Um, uh, and some of the, the, the top military leaders that, are, that uh, fought in Korea against Americans, like Lin Biao and uh, Peng Dehui and others, uh, were, you know... Uh, very, very much involved in, in, in uh, leading the Chinese forces uh, yeah. in Korea. Um, so, but what the Korean War does is, in Chinese society's eyes, it, it obviously turned everyone in China against the United States, against the West, on a dime, really, uh, if you think about it. Um, and there's this campaign. Uh, resist America, aid Korea campaign, right? The, okay. the party. So this is this is these are years. Uh, this is really, I think, the, one of the first major campaigns of the Mao era, and this is what we what has been referred to as campaign time. Um, and this is, I think, one of the distinguishing characteristics of, of communism in China is, are these mass campaigns, these mass movements um, that uh, Mao and the party would uh, use to instill their values into uh into chinese society and what what their mission was what their drive was so it's something that everybody can get on board with and you had urban work units in cities that could be the center of uh political activity for uh, urban communities and cities and then in the countryside you had these uh, growing agricultural collectives could, that could also be the source of political indoctrination. Uh, and then there's another event that really happens. Um, the, the first major political purge um, that happens after the founding of the PRC uh, begins in 1956. This is the anti-rightist campaign. Um, and part of that was in response to... Um, when Joseph Stalin died uh, okay. and um, Khrushchev gave his secret speech criticizing and denouncing Stalin. Uh, this alarmed the party leadership in China um, because if, you know, the founder of, you know, the, the father of the party, Stalin himself had committed errors, then what does that mean about the movement itself? And so, uh, Mao decided to launch this uh, this other sort of uh, movement or campaign called the Hundred Flowers Movement, basically where he encouraged intellectuals in society, writers, uh, teachers, and so on to openly criticize, uh, air their views uh, of the, about the party, even even critical ones. Yeah, and this was just kind of him getting ahead of it and kind of, uh, I guess, maybe dismantling that of uh, the party can do no wrong. That way he didn't get he didn't catch hell on the back end of it, right? 
Well, right, but it hor it backfires horribly for so many people. Uh, <laughs> that, that this brief thawing ended up becoming, you know, a death sentence for for so many. Um, and that's that's where the anti-rightist campaign kind of emerged. Um, there's always this belief, uh, especially uh, with Mao, that that there's this, this intense desire to purify the party, to eliminate all capitalist, um, uh, all traces of capitalism in the party. And there's also just, I think, a suspicion because when the communists take over in 49, they want to, they want to create a planned economy. Yeah. Um, they, but they also want to industrialize, uh, and so you have all these former, all these people that were in some way associated with the former regime uh, through business connections or political affiliations or whatever, um, they're viewed with suspicion. Uh, yeah, it's because they essentially were, they, they, weren't, they weren't attached to the party uh, during its formative years, and they... You know, they made money and, and were considered, uh, you know, essentially the class enemies of, of what the party was. Um, you know, they were labor exploiters. They, they became rich off of, uh, you know, land ownership and, and you know, in the, in the agricultural areas. And you have, you know, business people in the urban areas. So, yeah, I mean, that, you can land kind of see yeah. what that friendship point is. Yeah, wealthy land, landlords, landowners were at the top of the hit list in the, in the rural areas. Yeah. But even people that own small businesses or, you know, uh, things like that. Um, anybody who had studied it at, at a Western university. Um, one, one example that I, I think of is uh, this woman I studied in my own research, uh, uh, Sophie Zhang. Her Chinese name is Zhu Tiarong. Um, she was a, uh, a teacher in uh, Hunan's capital of Changsha. Um, who worked closely with the, the Yale uh, mission there. And after the war, uh, I believe both her and her husband went to Yale and got advanced degrees. Her, her husband studied law and she uh, got a master's degree in sociology. Um, and I mean, they ardently supported the, the communist revolution Um but but because of their association with this foreign uh, school, because he had a law degree from a foreign school, he was okay. suspicion. And and it's during the anti-rightist campaign that her husband actually killed himself, um, because of the of the of the pressure that, yeah. that he was under. And that that's actually quite common uh, during these um, during these purges as well. It would become common during the. Uh, the, the culture revolution itself. And then the other big thing that happens is the great leap forward. Um, Mao's uh, desire to collectivize agriculture. Uh, <clears throat> and um, it, it was this, this I, I mean, I think you have a very grand vision on, on the part of the, uh, uh, the party leadership. They want to create an egalitarian society, yeah. a classless society. Um, but Mao at the whole time and those loyal to him have these very sort of grand kind of 
romanticize versions uh, of, of what, of how to do that. Um, the party also, uh, the party leadership is, is also comprised of people like Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, who are, who are more pragmatic in the way that yeah. they want to, uh, you know, uh, govern society and, and get China on the path to, you know, economic recovery. Yeah, Mao, Mao seemed like he was a big picture type of guy, but don't bother him with the details. Right, right. I think that's a very good, that's a very good way to view Mao. You know, and, but then you had guys like Deng Xiaoping who kind of wanted, like you said, to do the more pragmatic thing, like, hey, rather than shooting for the, you know, uh, the, the 100 meter target, let's hit the 25 meter one first. Um, well, the, the, the CCP adopts the same model of economic planning that the Soviets had, the five-year plan model. And I mean, Deng Xiaoping is a, is a, is a, is one, uh, he's obviously an, an important figure in this time, but really I think the, the person to talk about uh, is Liu Xiaoqi. Okay. Um, but, but he's in the, in the, the pragmatist camp. So the excesses of the, of, so the, the Great Leap Forward was a colossal failure. I mean, it was a complete and total disaster uh, resulted in widespread famine. Um, something like 30 million people died, uh, during this, uh, time. Now um, with, with that kind of death toll, what, what kind of kicked all that off? Was it just poor advances and like mass, uh, trying to mass produce, uh, of, you know, agricultural product or, or was it shifting people into the agricultural area that had no idea what they were doing? You know, like kind of what was the, the, the catalyst for that kind of loss? I mean, the, the party wanted to increase the, you know, the agricultural and industrial output uh, at, at a rapid pace. And so they created these backyard furnaces, which, you know, a lot of people have talked about. Um, yeah, that's a running joke on left Twitter is having a pig iron furnace in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, they actually experimented with that during their time uh, exiled in Northeast China. So it wasn't without, it's not like they'd never done it before. Um, and agricultural collectivization is another thing that I think they had they, they'd done to, to, to some very varying degrees of success. But they just wanted to increase, uh, you know, production quotas. So what's, how do you do that? You know, you, you dig deeper into the soil um, you plant more seeds, you plant them closer together. Um, but this is a disaster because yeah. everybody, I mean, I guess any good farmer will tell you that, you know, that or if you're planting a garden, you know, you know that all the nutrients for seeds to grow are in the, in the top part of the soil. And so there's this idea that you dig down deeper and plant poor seeds. It would, uh, result in, in and large high, and higher yields and all that. Yield. <laughs> and um there, there's this whole prevailing mentality at the time that, that emerges this idea of red versus expert um and so instead of listening to you know educated experts about you know how to how to create a, a planned economy how to implement a policy it you know one's relevance in the party leadership is more determined by their loyalty to the party itself and not yeah. any kind of actual intellectual knowledge they have about 
farming or you know <laughs> things like that yeah which yeah. which i you know that kind of feeds into the cult of personality that grew up around mao um you know having those more ardent loyalists like you said rather than hey this person and their family's been farming here for however many generations maybe we should listen to them well no you know they're you know they maybe there's a knock on them somewhere in the genealogy and they're like well i'm a more loyal communist so obviously you know you need to listen to me rather than the that that farmer right and Mao was uh, what's the term an autodidact like he was entirely self-educated he did not have much of a, a university education and I think he was very resentful of very well educated people um, intellectuals especially um, they you know they would become his like number one target yeah during the the Cultural Revolution but I mean these people's these people people's communes that they created I mean. People, you know, farmers weren't allowed to tend their own private plots anymore. They had to give all their, uh, you know, all their surplus to, to the commune. Yeah. And in, in the early stages, you know, there's like stories about how in these canteens, you know, they would have an abundance of, of food. But um, after some of these uh, models are tried, like what, what I talked before about, you know, you know, overcropping, um, there's no more food. Yeah. People began to starve to death. And, um, and there, and especially in these, in the really remote areas, I mean, people would eat bark off trees, um, eating grass, eating any, anything. Um, yeah. and so local officials didn't want to face the repercussions of be, to be punished for these things. So they would over exaggerate, you know, yields and say like yeah everything's great out here you know in 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 uh in rural hunan when in actuality there's like you know people dying yeah um so uh that seemed to be a staple of every kind of five-year plan kind of uh you know hey we're, we're we're shooting for you know like you said uh the x amount of product that you can give to the state like what what are you what are you producing for the state and party bosses panic when they can't reach it, uh, so they lie, and then they have to backtrack and, and try and cover all the shortages that you know based right. on what they're reporting. Um, so it, it really just hampered you know that growth that they were shooting for that they really wanted. Um, and so I think within the party itself, Mao is kind of blamed for the excesses of the Great Leap, and he's sidelined politically for the first part of the 1960s, okay. and really Liu Shaoqi. Uh, becomes the uh, the chairman of the party. Okay. After this, um, and it's under his leadership that they they try to remedy the Great Leap. They continue with the with the program of industrial industrialization, um, and the party becomes more aligned with the, the sort of pragmatist wing of Liu, Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping and their, and their vision for modernizing. Okay. Um, and then by night, by the mid 1960s, Mao is kind of resentful of, you know, his, he's not, not having a very much of an active role in, in the, in the party. And so, um, he believes he believed that the you know the 
that the party itself was in need of reform. Again, this is what something that I think he'd always believed. Uh, so in to eliminate all uh, kind of capitalist influences in the party, all rightist influences, he wanted to declare a war on the party itself and completely cleanse the party. Um, and the Cultural Revolution was uh, the way to do that. And so by the summer of 1966, he starts holding these big rallies in Tiananmen Square, calling on the youth of the country to um, go spread the ideals of, of the party. Um, and this is the formation of the Red Guards, correct? Yes. And yeah. these are young, radical students. Uh, and Chairman Mao you know, endeared himself to the young people of China at the time by encouraging their sort of natural instinct to rebel Yeah. Uh, against their teachers, against their parents, against their bosses, you know. Um, it was a critique also of the old society, you know, the, the 2000 years of, of Confucian tradition that had been such a staple for Chinese society that had shaped the way Chinese people viewed familial relations and, and, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, cultural things like Confucianism and Buddhism and also. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of what I thought was really interesting uh, when, when I took the, uh, the, you know, the modern Chinese history course with you was that, you know, Mao was really looking to upend everything, uh, it seemed, in his push to start this because, you know, like you said, you've got this this cultural basis in Confucianism and, and the respect for your elders and they were, you know, and, and you know, the respect for the institutions. Um, and then you had, you know, an, an ancestor veneration, you know, but then you, what, you have Mao come in saying, all right, guys, you know, hey, you're 10 years old. And if your parents aren't, aren't enough communists, hey, let them have it, you know, right. like, and, and he he unleashed children. And let's face it, you deal with them, you know, <laughs> 18 and 19 year olds in every class you take, you know, right. um, yeah. you know I, you're yeah. this 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 kind of uh, uh, youthful, rebellious energy against the entire edifice of the state. You know, um, and the, the one thing that the Cultural Revolution does also is it it exposes a lot of um, class divisions in society. So people on you know uh, who were were less well educated um, on the lower rungs of society could now have open reign to criticize um, anyone who was better well off and a lot i mean regardless of what you know how egalitarian you're you're going to try to make everything there's there's also going to always going to be some form of privilege and and i mean party elites were among the most privileged uh, yeah. at this time and there was a lot of resentment uh against you know intellectuals and university faculty and teachers um you know, students that had the, the children of, of uh, high-ranking cadres were resented by, you know. Like rank-and-file membership? Right, rank-and-file membership, yeah. yeah. So 
it exposed a lot of these class divisions, right? Um, and I think when anytime you have a polarized political climate, that that's something that's always, always at the fore, uh, yeah. is the, the class divisions in society. And so um, if you resent your neighbor down the street because he's uh, a high-ranking party member and has wealth and privilege, you, you have now, you've now have free reign to go and uh, him. And so these Red Guards, I mean, they would go into towns and communities and they would just ransack people's houses. They would seize, you know, their property. They would um, beat them. They would hold these mass rallies and uh, put big dunce caps on their heads. And these they had to wear these placards that... Uh, um, stated their their capitalist crimes. Yeah, the infamous struggle sessions. The struggle sessions. Yeah. Um, now, was this just a was this just a way uh, for like you said these rank and file members who maybe weren't part of the party elite, you know, to you know they're they're trying to point out these class uh, divides. Was this a way for them to just kind of like one prove that they they were true communists uh, and eliminate their class enemy? Or was it just more of like, hey, uh, you know, I want to get ahead too, uh, compared to, to this? I mean, I mean there's both, both of those, I, th I think. Um, but I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these struggle sessions, I mean, it goes back to the, the first uh, land reform that began, uh, that the communists started experimenting with in the, even in the 1920s. Uh, when, um, you know, when Mao was, uh, active as a, as a peasant organizer in Hunan in those years, they would do some of the same things. They would round up these, these villages, they would round up these, these wealthy landlords, the, the, the peasants of a, of a village would all get together, parade them in front of the, of in the village and, and sort of publicly denounce him or her in some cases, um, for their, for their, for the way that they had mis been mistreated, you know, and it was a very cathartic thing for a lot. For a lot of so a, a lot of those class enemies who were labeled as such, they had to often write down all their crimes and they had to, what these were called criticisms. Yeah. Um, after 1949, every party member in society, uh, or even, I don't, I think even if, regardless of your party member, every person in society had to undergo uh, thought reform, uh, where you had to state in writing your supposed capitalist leanings and your complete and absolute unswerving loyalty to the party. <laughs> <laughs> um, Have you seen the movie Equilibrium? No. Okay. Well, it's it's kind of it's a. Uh futuristic society where they take a drug called equilibrium to eliminate emotion. Um, but like you're, you have this attachment and this devotion to the state and, and sticking in your lane and, and uh, you know, like the kids are supposed to report their parents when they don't take the drug to keep them from experiencing. Like there, there's a lot of, it seems like they, they borrowed a lot from what's what happened, uh, you know, during the, you know, thought reform, like who the hell, uh, like it's it's crazy some of these terms that you've already you know mentioned like yeah. thought reform like 
that reform. You know, like that's that is such a, you know, I, I it like for me, like you know, I'm a, I'm a socialist, but like I am a, I, I believe the buck stops with the people, and then look at how a lot of you know these socialist governments. Uh, have kind of ended up as just very top-heavy totalitarian states where the people are kind of afterthoughts, um, you know. So I, I just look at you know stuff like that. I'm like, man, that's <laughs> like that. Like that's like the antithesis. Yeah. The whole point. The one thing I've always tried to emphasize with students when I talk about the Cultural Revolution is I'm I'm just more interested in about. I mean, because I, I think we obviously can talk about the role Mao played and the role that those loyal to Mao played in, uh, you know, fomenting the cultural revolution. I mean, at the forefront of the cult of Mao and the publication of the Little Red Book, I need to mention this is Lin Biao, yeah. the, head of the, the head of the PLA. Um, PLA's People's Liberation Army. Right. And by, by the time of the cultural revolution um, happens, Lin Biao sort of replaces Liu Shaoqi as the heir apparent to Mao. Yeah. Um, but what were we talking about? I was, we were talking about thought reform. Yeah. I mean, and, and then we're, uh, the, you know, the little red book and, um, you know, that, that's something that everybody in the red guard carried with them, you know, and, th and this was, uh, I mean, the, the little red book was what just essentially, it was like Mao's musings on on what should happen. It was a collection of uh, quotations from speeches he had made and uh, essays he had written. Okay. Sort of compiled into one little short book. Uh, students, you know, people had to memorize this, uh, study it, you know, uh, intensely. Um, but uh, in... January of 1967, there's this event that happens called, I think it's referred to as the January seizure. So the students, these Red Guards are encouraged to go into the, the local governments of uh, provinces uh, and replace those governments with revolutionary committees, um, completely overturning you know, the bureaucratic system itself. Yeah. And so you're replacing uh, the leadership of, of communities who are responsible for governing with, you know, these incensed uh, teenagers. <laughs> um, that can't end well. <laughs> uh, the fact that it was a, you know, a youth oriented movement um, I mean, I think that that harkens back also to one of the first major political movements in China's history, the May 4th era uh, in 1919. Um, and so the the idea that the, the core of the party or the potential of the party is a sort of youth inspired kind of thing, I think, could be traced back to that that time. <clears throat> but. Um, I mean, the, the real tragedy, I think, of the Cultural Revolution, too, is that um, it's these Red Guard groups that are going out into these places and having these struggle sessions and beating and killing people. Uh, and and, so, and some of them, you know, 
like the the writer Ma Boa, um, who wrote a memoir of his own called uh, Blood Red Sunset. It's quite good. Um, he was one of these radical red guards who even talked about, you know, how he would beat people. Yeah. But in the end, uh, what happens is that I think by 1968 or thereabouts, the party began to recognize that the Cultural Revolution was kind of spinning rapidly out of control, especially in in areas in the hinterland, places yeah. like Taiwan. Um where they, you know, these red, these revolutionary committees completely overturned the, the, the local government. So the PLA, the PLA had to be called in to take back control. So uh, essentially you have like Lin Bao, Lin Biao, Lin, Lin Biao, who is in charge of the PLA taking on, uh, you know, this, this youth rebellion, essentially that was kind of, uh, spurred forward by Mao. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the extent to which uh, Lin Biao was personally like involved in. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure about that. But what I was trying to get at is is uh, the PLA had to be called in to clean up the mess, and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of these red guards end up, ended up themselves being imprisoned or executed or exiled. Uh, what also happens during these years is, is, they, is a lot of the young people in China, especially those in cities, uh, there's this whole impetus uh, for, to, to rusticate the youth. So how do we do that? We send them away to work in labor in the countryside. And so Ma Bo, the, the writer I mentioned earlier, he was sent he was exiled to, I think, a remote part of Mongolia. Oh. And he was like, for, I mean, a really long time, he was like living by himself in this really remote area. And he like struggled with intense depression and just had a really horrible time. Uh, so that, that was considered more of like a reform for these, these Red Guard that were, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, arrested. Uh, and that, that was kind of like their, their penance was they went and worked, uh, you know, in the countryside. I, I mean, that kind of makes sense because how, how do a lot of adults, you know, look at kids? If you, if you, you just have to learn hard work and you won't be rebellious and, and you know, you, you'll learn to be a good, a good kid, you know? So like they set him in the middle of nowhere, uh, have them clear land and, 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 dam up you know help build dams and other industrial projects and then eventually they would repatriate them for a lot of for a lot of young people at this time i i think it's it's fair to say it just really depend it depended on like your class background whether or not you were going to be a target uh, or labeled a class enemy you know um i always an example i always use is my the the woman who first taught me chinese in hunan province um her father had served in the nationalist army and because of that connection, she was yeah. sent down into it to a labor camp and she met her husband in this camp who's who's his father had also served in the nationalist army. And so that's how they met. But she, I mean, she had a really horrible time. She, you know, I think had a, a difficult time recalling her experiences. I think she had to be paraded 
in the street in her bare feet and you know she had to wear uh the dunce cap and do all those humiliating things um i i remember talking to another gentleman though who uh was a t- retired professor um saying that you know when he was when he was a sent down youth working in this very remote area he said it was one of the best times in his life you know because he i think he had two sets of clothes he had to get up and work every day um and it was a very simple kind of existence for him yeah he seemed to he seemed to have a lot of nostalgia for it whereas other people didn't fare so well i mean the, the, a lot of this violence and a lot of these mass killings that happen in china uh a lot of them were very pronounced in in the rural areas well would you say that there that's because there was a little more inequality there and had been you know there had been a lot more inequality there stretching back to even before the communists took over i think so uh, I, th- I think also there's this uh, less bureaucratic uh, party control more factionalism possibly okay um but i mean you have and you know it just gets really really crazy like out in uh parts of Hunan and Guizhou i mean there's these some stories of like you know ideological cannibalism happening just just crazy crazy mass killings across the board all that is to say i mean i i find it really troubling that there's a debate out there about we were talking about this before um before we started there's there's some kind of debate going on about yeah you know i i don't i don't really under i i think the evidence is compellingly clear and obvious the cultural revolution was appallingly violent it was horrible for so many people um there has been a reassessment of it i think by some academians um is and i i think as far as i know or can can speak on I think a lot, some of the reassessment has had to do with um, the uh, the nature of China's economic growth during this time, because I think there was a lot of there, there was the prevailing tendency was is that China's growth stagnated during these ten years. This is referred to as China's lost ten years. Yeah, I mean, I mean, university classes were suspended for a good part of this. Well, wasn't wasn't essentially formal education was suspended unless it was, uh, you know, essentially the little red book, right? You know, um, but the but what uh, his, economic historians have found is that actually China's uh, economic growth. I mean, it, it wasn't like fast paced or gangbusters or anything, but it still experienced, you know, um, moderate uh, yeah. growth. Um, so that, that, that's, I mean, in terms of rethinking the cultural revolution, uh, it was also kind of, a, a society's kind of cathartic response to 2000 fusion, uh, um, culture, you know, I mean, it completely overturned everything about Chinese society, you know? Yeah. So before we go forward with more of that, like what, what? kind of wrapped up the cultural revolution what what kind of you know uh you know in 76 what happened to kind of well i I think that's a real telltale moment i think where it started to unravel for some people i think when the pla had to you know start 
uh, bringing order. I mean, and the other thing too is that Red Guard organizations, especially in Beijing, which is like the politically charged capital. Yes. The student red the Red Guard organizations at, at universities like Beijing University became polarized. So you have these different Red Guard factions that emerge. It's like, you know, uh, we interpret the, the the teachings of Chairman Mao one way. No, we interpret them another way. And a lot of these factions would engage in sort of pitched warfare. Yeah, I the, uh, the uh, oh my gosh, the was it the three body problem? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, like, yeah, yeah. The opening scenes, you know, I mean that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's you know, a, so, a great book. I had you guys read. Yes, and it's it's and it, uh, it's a piece of fiction that I really enjoyed because there was some truth behind it. It starts um, during the the book begins during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember that scene where you know they're out in front, and you know she's being, uh, you know she's going through her own struggle session, and then you have another Red Guard group come up and attack them. Uh, you know, like, and it's just like. You know, th it it seems that that is another telltale sign of of kind of leftism, you know, and and we'll use that big umbrella term there. Uh, throughout, you know, the nineteenth and twentieth century is you know the the left eats itself. It really does. Yeah, I think that's a very good. That's an apt point. You know, and and it seemed kind of like if you've got you know, this, this mass movement in Beijing, you know, because just strictly size. And like you said, that's, that's where a lot of the, the political uh, power is, you know, and they start eating itself, you know, that, that should show you that should, that should just be like the small microscopic look and, and, you know, that the party should have been looking at and saying, well, if it's this bad here in Beijing, how bad has you know is it going to get everywhere else? Well, I mean, poor you know Liu Xiaoqi is such a, a fortunate uh, example of all this because he became the victim of a purge himself. Both he and his wife, you know, his wife was paraded at a large gathering at a, a workers' stadium. They dressed her up like a whore, uh, you know, denounced her publicly. It was humiliating, and Liu Xiaoqi, I mean, died of maltreatment. And so did Peng Dehui, I believe. I mean, uh, you know, heroes of the revolution, ardent communists. Um, and then an another another moment, I think, is obviously the Lin Biao incident in seventy one. Uh, the The party line afterwards was that he had was plotting to assassinate Mao or something like that, but. Yes. As far as I understand it, he was probably going to be the victim of a purge himself. Yeah, every, everything, everything I've read up, uh, in addition to like just going over my notes and some of the, the literature you gave us, like that's, that's you know, he, he was immediately uh, focused as being uh, as a, like a, another political f focus for the party, and that wasn't going to work for you know, some other members, higher ups in the party. So he was, like you said, he was going to be purged. And I like how in class you put up the air quotes, he died in a plane crash. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think, I think it's pretty well confirmed that he, he, his plane was shot down over Mongolia in September of 1971. 
but you know why he was there yeah is that's the the matter of debate um i think he was trying to flee the country because he didn't want to be purged because everybody was purged you know and yeah um maybe there was more to it uh we obviously there's a lot of mystery around it um but i think for a lot of people in chinese society when when lin biao died who was like very much at the center and the top of the party hierarchy uh, you know helped author compile the little red book itself you know if he's fallible then what does that mean yeah you know? um i mean an, another another figure that I'm, uh, during this time i, I want to uh, talk about is joe and lie um who's probably one of the most respected statesman in China's modern history uh, outside of Mao himself. Obviously, I think actually many people even have even more respect for Zhou Enlai than they do Mao. Um, Why Zhou, Zhou Enlai was able to somehow maneuver himself uh, to be, to not get purged. Oh. Um, Zhou Enlai, uh, there was a great article about him in the uh, Escherich uh, edited volume that I had you guys read about, you know, these Red Guard groups, they would go to these these cultural sites. The best example is the is the cemetery of uh, the ancestral cemetery of Confucius himself um, and other Buddhist temples, and they would desecrate monuments and statues and other things because they were, you know, part of the uh, the old society. But Joe and Lai would, you know, get on the phone with these revolutionary committee leaders or these Red Guard leaders and plead and, uh, and plead with them not to yeah. destroy these cultural relics. Um, and uh, it's also becoming, I think, pretty obvious that by early 1970s, Mao's health was declining. He was making fewer public appearances, uh, and you know the decisions regarding the Cultural Revolution and the party itself were being more handled by the this this clique, this clique, uh, this faction in the party loyal to Mao. Um, and then the other thing that happens. In 1972 was uh, Richard Nixon's visit to China in February. Wow. So he, I didn't even realize that he went during like the, you know, during the whole, the whole yeah. ongoing cultural revolution. That's crazy. Yeah. He went, I think in, in Kissinger had been, uh, you know, obviously at the center of, 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 uh, trying to engage the Chinese in the lead up to the visit. Um, obviously Nixon was doing this as, as a, uh, you know, as a gesture to, to deter the Soviets because he was exploiting the, the, the Sino-Soviet rift. Yeah. And the, the Soviets and the Chinese had kind of been at odds with each other for, you know, even going uh, back before the war started because um, the Chinese, specifically Mao's version of, of communism, began to differ from the orthodox 
Stalinist view of, of communism, the idea of a workers' revolution. Yeah. I um, mean, that, that, that was the biggest split because you have to, you know, even though I, I don't consider Stalin much of a good socialist to begin with, um, you know, but he really leaned into the, the like you said, the workers. Uh, and for him, agricultural work was just, a, uh, hey, we have to feed people so they can continue to put out steel and other industrial items. Like his focus was the industrial worker. Whereas, I don't think Stalin had a very high opinion of, of peasants. No, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. say he did. Uh, and then you had Mao who his basis was the agrarian worker. Right. Right. The farmer. Um, yeah. The farmer. And then yeah. he realized for, to keep up in this world where we are going to have to industrialize. Um, you know, but that was the basis for his party was the was the farm worker. I mean, the the, the communist revolution was a peasant revolution. Yeah. Maoist movements that spring up in other parts of Asia uh, during this time and after. I mean, they they're they're more attracted to the to the to Maoism because of its insurgent quality. Yes. I mean, I think this is why guerrilla groups in Latin America and other places became attracted to to, to the Chinese form of communism as well. Um, so Nixon's visits China in February, that begins a thawing somewhat, the, the, uh, American ping pong team visits China. This is the era of ping pong diplomacy. Uh, things are starting to thaw, I think. Um, and then, uh, <clears throat> And then, and then Joe and Lai, I mean, what really brings the, the, the Mao era and the Cultural Revolution to a, sort of a screeching halt is the death, the deaths of Joe and Lai and Mao within months of each other. Joe and Lai dies in January of 76. Mao dies in September. Yeah. Um, and when Joe and Lai dies in January, <clears throat> um, there's this huge outpouring of public out display of outpouring and grief for him. Uh, and people uh, go to Tiananmen Square and they place all these wreaths in honor of him. And the government orders these removed. Uh, it was a big mistake and it pissed off a lot of people. Uh, and so that was kind of, you know, another, another moment where it, it, there's a, there's a fracture. And then, yeah, uh, after Mao dies, the uh, the gang of you know the group known as the Gang of Four uh, are arrested, including and Mao's wife, right? One of them is Mao's wife. I think she's the <laughs> high profile group of the four. Um, I know in your your transcript here, you wanted me to talk about. Um, the Gang of Four. I only mentioned just uh, just his wife, Zhang Qing. Um, she's a former actress. Uh, she was not Mao's first wife. Yes, I remember you saying that because uh, he had a wife uh, in Hunan, right? And then, and uh, then after uh, the rise of the, you know, the PRC, right? Shortly after that, he got remarried. Correct. I think. How many wives do you have? 
Yeah, see, I, I should have I should have looked over my other papers to to prep for this because <laughs> I. <laughs> but yeah, I I, th I just like I wanted to just kind of touch on the Gang of Four because that was the bridge into Deng Xiaoping. Right. Um, that was married four times, for the record. Oh man, right. he he was a busy dude. And, uh, lead, leading revolutions, get married, you know. <laughs> um, but the gang of four are arrest are arrested, and basically a coup, and that ends kind of the the Maoist sort of domination of the party. And they're put on this. They were put on trial in 1981 on state television, and all sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, and by in '81, when the trial's going on, Deng Xiaoping is the is the chairman, correct? No, Deng Xiaoping no. was never. Deng Xiaoping never held an official post. It's, okay. It's, that's the interesting thing about him. He didn't want an official post because he did not want the cult of personality uh, revolving around him. Okay, gotcha. But he's sort of the 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 guy. He was working from behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and he's been obviously credited with uh, in the years following Mao's death, especially by the early 1980s, of of initiating these economic reforms that have given us the China we know today. And he's also the guy that you know had the denunciation. Of the Cultural Revolution, which is kind of for this discussion, I thought was really important. Well, his the official party line about the Cultural Revolution, I can't remember if it comes from Deng Xiaoping himself or just the party, is in terms of Mao's involvement, uh, in, in summing up Mao's legacy overall, 70% of what Mao did was good and 30% uh, was bad. <laughs> That's kind of a weird set of numbers, but you know what? Yeah. I'm not going to argue with the guy. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, he's that, that's interesting though. He didn't want an official title, uh, but he essentially ended up as like the leading voice, um, you know, during that time. Like you said, the, the China we had now began with a lot of his policies during, uh, you know, the opening up. Right. Was he the guy that kind of went into, what is it, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, or was that later on? That That's the slogan that Deng Xiaoping, I think, is most famous for. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the things that really stuck out when you were uh, during one of our one of the lectures. <laughs> I was like, "Well, okay." Characteristics. <laughs> Basically, it's the, the becomes the kind of slogan for China's uh, economic reforms, and the key to those reforms would be uh, foreign direct investment. Yeah, especially in the southern coastal areas initially, uh, but. Okay, yeah. so we we have we have you know we're we're the gang of four has been tried, uh, you know we the, the the stranglehold of Mao on the party is broken, you know, and now we have you know kind of the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, you know. Um, in in seventy eight, 
what happens in the in the in the decade or more following it is that you have you have Chinese society's response to the excesses of a cultural revolution. Um, the first of these is uh, was the Democracy Wall movement in 1978. Uh, a former uh, an electrician named uh, uh, oh geez, um, his name escapes me. I got that Alzheimer's going now, man. <laughs> <laughs> Wei Jingsheng. Uh, Wei Jingsheng uh, publishes this this character poster, this essay about the fifth modernization in Chinese society. You know, we need to. Mo I mean, the four modernizing forces uh, for the for the party. You know, were education. Uh, the military, uh, agriculture, and industry. But Wei Jingsheng says that China also needed democracy. Um, and he was arrested for saying this, and he was put on, uh, put on trial and served many years in jail until he was finally allowed to And he's, I think, as far as I know, he's still living uh, in the United States. But... And then, and there's just a big conversation about democratization among uh, youth and intellectuals in China during the 1980s. And this is yeah. a period when the Soviet Union and the United States are, you know, kind of wrangling for world supremacy. And uh, Ronald Reagan and Sylvester Stallone single-handedly take down the soviet union hey you know don't don't forget hasselhoff man he had a big hand in that okay he tore down that wall uh um, oh, right that's right <laughs> hoff, hoff, can't forget the hoff yep um gave a concert yeah. right, at, the, at the at the berlin wall yep um so all this is going on um in uh, may of 1989 uh, mikhail mikhail gorbachev visited China on an official state visit and um, the premier of China at the time, because I remember I mentioned that Deng Xiaoping held no official position in the government. The premier of China at the time was this, uh, was Zhao Ziyang. Zhao Ziyang admits to Mikhail Gorbachev on state television that uh, even though he's something to the effect of, even though he's the premier, the party still defers to comrade Deng Xiaoping on all matters. That was a big no, no. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> and uh, and then in in uh, on the evening of June third, I believe Zhao Ziyang goes to the square um, where millions of students are gathered, uh, protesting for uh, greater political openness, democratic reforms. Um, because once once these economic reforms began to be uh, uh, applied. And their economy started to allow more privatization to come in. It's obviously going to create, you know, class divisions. Yeah, because some people uh, are going to be able to. It's going to create even more haves and have-nots, and it yeah. creates a lot of resentment in society. And so you have a broad spectrum of people protesting in in the summer of '89 in China, uh, not just students but workers um, and other people. Um, who are just pissed off at the party. I think they're also just pissed off about the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. Um, Deng Xiaoping and the party orders that the square be cleared 
uh, by force. They impose martial law. Zhao Ziyang, the night before, uh, goes, you know, very publicly went out to plead with the students to leave. Um, some did, others did not. We don't know how many died in the square uh, that day, uh, that night. Um, uh, the, the the numbers vary from the hundreds to several thousands, but yeah, I, I think that I mean something needs to be also be said about eighty nine. Um, yeah, I mean that seemed to be uh, like you said that was a that was a vestige of what happened. Um, you know, the Cultural Revolution gave way to the the opening and the reforms that allowed for people to, uh, you know. You saw a lot, you know, consumer goods start flooding into China and, and you, like you said, it built up that, that kind of class division between haves and have nots, you know, and let's face it, when you open things up, even just a little bit, it's going to open up that door for other ideas to pop in as well. Um, I mean, I think in the long term, the, 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 the benefits of China's opening, uh, I mean, have obviously paid off. I mean, China needed to make money. I yeah. mean, uh, there, there's you know obvious problems in China today as as there is in every society, but I mean what they've been able to accomplish with their economy is quite remarkable, especially when when you consider a lot of the social and political problems that China experienced during most of the 20th century, really. Um, and you know the the number that's the total number dead uh, from the cultural revolution itself i mean the estimates vary from you know you know to several million to you know more conservative estimates you know four or five hundred thousand it's just it's really hard to, to to tabulate but it was there's no question again again the evidence is pretty clear and compelling that that it was a very violent and horrible uh time for for many people yeah, and I think that's that has to be the biggest takeaway is that you you do have this widely or you know this widely uh, you know I don't want to say disputed but varying figure of in the six figures and I and the highest number I saw was twenty million, um, you know, and that's a huge loss of life you know even in a country as big as China with a population as big as China. But then, like you said, the evidence is telling us this. You have people that survived it that went on to publish their stories or or interview to to share their stories. Um, like this should not be something that's discussed. This happened, and it was awful. Uh, you know, like that church up the cultural revolution. It was a shit show. Uh, you know that 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 was that's the only real way that you could say it. Um, you know, and it, it kind of kills me that there are people out there that were like, well, you know, it's an inflated number and, you know, Western academics and Western journalists, you know, blow this out of proportion. It really wasn't that bad. And it's like, uh, no, no, uh, I, I, it really was that bad. You know, like I, I just it, it confounds me, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's not even just the the deaths. Uh, you know, I, the Ban Chao Dam failure. You know, that happened during this. You know, and you know, it, it was because of poor maintenance on dams because nobody was there to maintain it. Tangshan earthquake. You know, yeah. Uh, 
I'm trying to see some of the other ones I, I pulled up. Um, you know, like there's just there's a whole list uh, of just um, you know things that happened during the Cultural Revolution that you know you can't stop an earthquake, but you also cannot um, adequately react to it if you are dealing with something like right. the Cultural Revolution. You know, so that that's only gonna you know, exacerbate the problem. I mean, something like 60% of the party, of party officials were ousted from their positions. Um, and a lot of the, I mean, a lot of these people died from maltreatment or executed. And what happens in the years following is that a lot of them have to be, uh, their reputations have to be rehabilitated and restored. And often this is a very public thing. Yeah. You, you would see something in the local newspaper about, you know, comrade so-and-so, his reputation has been officially restored in the party and he was guilty of no crimes. And a, a lot of times that was done posthumously for, for people that had died. Uh, and um, the woman I mentioned, Sophie Junk, her husband is an example of that. Okay. She was hor horribly treated. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it just seemed like there is nothing... Um... You know, the, the I, I can you know the only real positive, okay, and, I, and I'm using that term loosely. I don't really mean a, a positive, but you know, considering that so many people lost their lives or or were subjected to torture and abuse, and, and you know, uh, you know, the way that your instructor was, it, the only the only positive is that it led to the opening and the reform. You know, but. <laughs> You have the flip side of that even now, like uh, we talked about one day after class, uh, you know, that part of, China, you know, that, that opening led to kind of the wild west of capitalism to go into China where you still have, you know, worker abuse and, and they're underpaid and they work in horrible conditions, in, you know, and, you know, um, and now these people are subject to the same capitalistic swings that we saw here, you know, uh, factories close when there's no demand for the product and then they're out of you know so i mean it's it's kind of like a, a catch-22 uh in that regard um but yeah i mean uh you know the cultural revolution's bad i think we could both agree on that I, I, i'm surprised i'm just surprised that i mean i'm sure there are academics uh, there are plenty of uh, academics out there that you know, obviously are you know, debating, and we'll go on to debate, you know, the, the legacy of it, the impact of it. Um, but I, don't, I have no problem going on record as saying that it was an incredibly horrible and chaotic time for many people, for all of Chinese society. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just uh, a hor horribly intense, uh, intense time. I think any, I mean, there's so many, I mean, and, and I think the worst mistake you can make uh, I often, I mean, I try to instill this in my students because this is this is important when you you study other parts of the world, you study other cultures. It's so easy for us in the West to, you know, sort of thumb our noses at other parts of the world and say, "Gosh, you know, like they've never been a free society, or you know, we're so much better than they are, or look how barbaric they are." Um, I commentary on the human condition. There's a human element here, like. What can we take? What lessons can we take from the cultural evolution to become better human beings and like how we yeah. treat each other, how we govern 
how we govern govern societies. And anytime you have an intensely divided uh, society over things like just a very politicized culture where there's such a tendency to vilify, you know, the other side or someone that doesn't agree with you or social media. I mean, my God, like, I mean, just trolling. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a polarized political climate, you know, it can be dangerous and disastrous for, for any society. And I think there's, there's lessons, you know, that we can take away, you know, from, from this to, to, to make sure we don't, we don't go down that road, you know? Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest point in studying history is to ensure is to learn one and two, to make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes. Uh, and that that's the cultural revolution was a gigantic mistake. Um, and you know, I'm probably going to catch hell for this. That's okay. Uh, you know, I, I stand by it. Uh, I've got, you know, I've got backup on this, that it, it was bad. So uh, what we've learned, I hope somebody, everybody got something from this, but what we, what we can all agree on is the cultural revolution was bad. I mean, there's a great, there's a number of great memoirs. Uh, yeah. Um, to the Storm uh, is one of them. Uh, another one I mentioned, Mabua's Blood Red Sunset. Um, um, the there's an edited volume uh, uh, by Joseph Eschrich. Uh, it contains some great historical essays uh, on the Cultural Revolution. Now, see, I, I hope for every listener, is you're just not learning stuff, you're getting actual reading lists. So you can, you too can go learn straight from the source because I, that's important. Um, the, history, the, the cultural revolution as history. Um, and then I'll, I'll plug one more thing. The University of Pittsburgh has launched this uh, project because what historians are really concerned about is that the, the baby boomer generation, you know, who lived during the cultural revolution, they're dying out, you yeah. know? So the history of that event is being, you know, is being lost. A lot, a lot of China historians really want to get more, we want to get more into the history of the PRC since 49, but obviously you go to China, you, you know, a lot of the, a lot of that material is just not available or open to, to outsiders, anybody in China really. Um, and so there's, uh, there's been a, a drive to do oral, more oral histories interviews with people. And so the University of Pittsburgh has this uh, this project. It's called CR10, China's Cultural Revolution in Memories. The CR, it's CR slash 10 project. Um, and this is through the University of Pittsburgh, but it's, the website is just cultural revolution, all lowercase one word, dot pit, dot edu. Um, and I think there's, there's just a wealth of uh, oral history uh, interviews, firsthand accounts, a lot of really great material uh, and work uh, that they're that they're doing there. So if anybody's listening and wants to learn more, I know I named one book, some of the biographies, but you can also check out that website. Yeah. So guys, get out there, read a book, hit up, uh, you know, the website uh, if you're interested. I mean. It, it, 
you know, you're absolutely right, Dr. Hudson, in the fact that these stories will be lost if, if they're not collated and, 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 you know, saved. So uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, this might be the nicest thing I have to say about the city of Pittsburgh. Thank you. You're doing good work. But other than that, you suck. Go Cleveland. Um, but uh, Steelers, yeah. the Steelers are undefeated, man. Yeah, well, they can eat a dick. Uh, but do you, you're not on social media, but do you have anything you'd like to plug personally uh, before we head out of here? Um, I'll just uh, I'll plug my department. I, I work for a great department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Some really great uh, historians, um, subject matter experts like myself um, that are doing some great work in research and teaching. I'm proud to be, uh, you know, associated with such a fine group of people. But um, if you're a student and want to take a history class, uh, please, um, you know, hit us up. Uh, when all this is when all this mess with COVID's over, you know, come by my office. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, we're in Dial uh, Hall on the second floor. Yeah, uh, I'm a product of that history department, and I loved it. Uh, you will enjoy taking classes with Dr. Hudson. I took three of them, and I initially had no interest in Asian studies, but uh, I enjoyed every minute with the exception of like one paper where I didn't enjoy that. But um, you can find me on Twitter at BeardedCynic473 and also at uh, YDA, or, excuse me, YDK History Pod. Uh, that's the, the podcast Twitter page. But... Uh, you know, thank you for uh, coming on, Dr. Hudson. I appreciate it. My email, uh, my email address at Pembroke is just hudson at uncp.edu. If you want to look me up, you have a question um, or anything about anything I talked about, need clarification or, or, or whatnot, um, you know, look me up that way as well. See, there you go. Uh, I knew we could get one, one uh, personal uh electronic communication that's, plug, that's right? the extent of my reach I'm sorry <laughs> to say. i have no i have no social media i mean this for me i think this is a great platform you know I, I think doing a podcast like this this is the second one i've done uh in as many months um been featured on and uh you actually um i participated in a podcast with some colleagues of mine last spring for 30 brave minutes on the uh the history of World War II. Yeah. Um, and it was really great because we had myself and two titans uh, of knowledge in my department, Dr. Bruce DeHart and Dr. Robert Brown, talk about uh, their areas of expertise of World War II. So if you want to check, you want want to know more about that, you can just go to, uh, I think Google just 30 Brave Minutes UNCP, and it should take you right to the page where that, that podcast is, is featured. Yep. So we also, uh, we also did uh, in September we did a a WebEx uh, panel discussion on the history of plagues and pandemics, and that uh, the YouTube video for that is on our history department webpage. Yes, I did watch that one. Yeah, um, uh, I, that, was, that was really great. Um, yeah, I, so I, I enjoyed that one. So. Uh, Check that out too if uh, if you want to if you want want to know more. It's just uh, the UNCP History Department webpage. I think if you just go under events, it should be right there. So there you go, people. What we're saying is, if you're a historian, go to Pembroke. Uh, 
it, it, it's it's a good histor a good his school for historians, um, of which I'm just a junior historian. But hey, you know what are you gonna do? But thank you everybody for We're listening. Students. We're all and students. That's right. Uh, thank you everybody for listening, and uh, I will see you next week.